Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. Well, um, let's begin with a word of grace, though. Father, we are going to be humbled by this text, by the message of this text, of the awesomeness of your majesty, of your glory, of you as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, that we've seen these pagan kings being confronted with this reality. The God who watches over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and keeps them from the lion's den and the fiery furnace is our God and our Lord who watches over us as well. And you are the stone that the builders rejected that became the cornerstone of this magnificent kingdom and temple that you're building. And Lord, we have a role in all of this. And I really believe this this text so wonderfully tells us so much that we can learn from and grow and, and understand. And there's, 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 a, there's joy and excitement and enthusiasm, as well as awe and, and fear and trepidation and, and concern from what this message is about. So, Father, speak to us tonight and make yourself known to us. Help us to be bold, empowered by the Spirit of God to do great things. To be, to be lights that shine in the midst of darkness in a crooked and perverse world, as Paul says. Help us not to back down from the enemy, for the enemy's been defeated. And the kingdoms of this world have been devastated by the stone. And help us to live in that truth. So often we just allow worry and fear and sin and shame to rule over us. But it has no authority. Help us to be victorious in Christ and in Christ alone. We give you praise now, and we thank you. We ask for the power of your Spirit to illuminate us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, Daniel 7, let me just put it this way. Daniel 7 is one of the most significant chapters in the entire Old Testament, especially for our understanding of the New Testament. This is one of the most dominant chapters the New Testament writers are referring to. All right? Throughout and throughout and throughout. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title. That title appears in Daniel 7. And it appears elsewhere as well. We're going to tie this to Revelation 13 later on, tonight. I think, tonight. Um, so we're not going to finish Daniel 7 tonight. Uh, and what, we're, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go through Daniel 7, we'll talk about the text, we'll lay it all out in light of Daniel 7, and then we'll jump to the New Testament a little bit, most, most likely we'll deal with Revelation 13 and, and Daniel 7. 
Then next week we're going to go into Daniel 8, and what we'll see is Daniel 8 and Daniel 7, we're, we're, they, they're, they're like a, a, a glove. All right, Daniel 8's like really totally confusing. This, this chapter is easy compared to Daniel 8. But we'll, we'll, read, we'll read 8 and 7 together, and then we'll go back to the New Testament now and put everything, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, the Gospels, us, because in our reality, I'll get to it probably tonight, the Son of Man is us. It's Jesus, but it's us. And so we're going to see, all, and we'll see all that in the New Testament as we go through the New Testament as well. So we're really going to spend two weeks on Daniel 7, though we'll cheat next week and we'll throw Daniel 8 into the mix uh, um, as well. And we'll be in Revelation next week as well. Um, and, and I'll talk about these things uh, 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 next week as well. So let me begin by reminding us what we've discussed a number of times here. This is page one on your outlines of the structure of the book of Daniel. And I do believe I have a question mark here under point number two under capital B under Roman numeral two on page one that chapters two and seven are chiastically arranged. But I have a que- you know, uh, question mark. Are they? I think they are. Uh, what we see is that chapters two and seven are related to one another. They both are going to have dreams that have four kingdoms. And we've seen it in Daniel two already. And we'll see that in Daniel seven tonight. The destruction of the fourth kingdom results in the coming of the divine kingdom. That's, that's, that's the moral of the story right there. Four kingdoms, they're horrific beasts, the last of which, when it's destroyed, means God establishes his kingdom. And the divine kingdom wins. It's the same thing as a stone that destroys that image of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. So if you've, if you've, if you've been with us so far, you're, you're way ahead of the, of, of the curve. All right, the fourth kingdom in both cases is the most terrifying. All right, and we'll go over that as well. Chapters 3 and 6 were about, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And their ordeals. The people of God face these ordeals living in the midst of pagan nations. And they're both saved from the fiery furnace and from the lion's den. They're clearly in parallel to one another. And then 4 and 5 are rebellious foreign kings. One who repents, one who doesn't. And so we see this parallel between the two. So 2 and 7... Three and six, four and five. All right. Now the next thing to note is chapters one through six are stories, um, kind of about Daniel. <clears throat> now let's even add to that. Um, well, all right. I'll just go follow the outline. How's that? Chapter seven through twelve are stories by Daniel of his visionary experiences. You see, in two through six, other people had visions, and Daniel interpreted them. In chapter seven. Daniel has the vision. Now things have churned. And what happens now is, in 2 through 6, Daniel interpreted the vision for the kings and the others who had the visions. Now Daniel has a vision and he needs an angel to come tell him what the vision means. Daniel, Daniel isn't interpreting the vision at all. Uh, so quite, quite a bit of, uh, of difference there as well. There's obviously the difference, by the way, that chapters 1 through 6 were kind of historical, weren't they, right? They're just stories, they're... The stories we learned, for those of us that have been in the church for a long time, we, we learned them in Sunday school classes and all that. Daniel 7 is apocalyptic. I saw these four beasts, and, you know, they're terrifying, and they got horns and ribs coming out of their sides, and it's like, whoa, what, whatever that is. That's what we call apocalyptic. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk about that here a little bit as we go as well. All right, chapters 1 through 6, we found out that faithful Jews are the faithful people of God. How's that? Can live and succeed in a pagan court. 
though even though they sometimes face hostilities. Chapter 7 through 12, and we'll see this now. I know you might not realize this yet. We're going to find out uh, that pagan powers are wild beasts. And the faithful people of God, or the faithful Jews, inevitably suffer persecution and even death. Right? The, the tides have turned. You see, the people of God were preserved in Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6 from the fiery furnace and from the lion's den. They're trampled on. They're trampled on in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8. And that ain't a good thing. All right? that, that means their deaths uh, as well. Dan, uh, 1 through 6, the meaning of dreams are revealed to Daniel, and he's the interpreter. And 7 through 12, Daniel needs an angel to interpret the dreams uh, to him. And I think, yeah, that's all I had for that. All right, so let's go back now to page chapter 7, which I think is on page 13. All right? And I'm going to skip this top part for just a second. What I want us to do is, let's watch the outline. Daniel 7, 1 through 8, we have the vision of these horrific beasts. Daniel 7, 1 through 8, we have the vision of these horrific beasts. Daniel 7, 9 through 14, on page 14, 7, 9 through 14, we have this vision of the Ancient of Days who take his, takes his seat in the throne of God. The Ancient of Days is, the, is God. All right? Now God's going to do what? He's going to stand in judgment of those horrific beasts. All right? So, 1 through 8, visions of horrific beasts. 9 through 14, we find out God takes his throne and he has dominion and authority and glory and honor and all belongs to him. Then we go to verses 15 through 28 now. And what we really get is a more detailed interpretation of what's going on with this fourth beast. Remember, the fourth beast is more horrific and more terrifying than all the other beasts. Okay? So, with that in mind here, this is what's going on. 1 through 8, vision of the four beasts. 9 through 14, God takes a seat in the heavenly court and pronounces judgment in favor of the people of God and against the horrific beasts. 15 through 18 now, 15 through 28, more detail, more depth of, of what's really going on behind the surface. And it's going to end, of course, with, this, with, this, with, with ultimately a great note, and yet not a great note as well. So with that in mind, let's read now. Let's go to Daniel 7. And I hope you've read this before, and, and as I asked you week number one, but let's kind of read through Daniel 7. A lot of this is not going to make sense because it's just wild, apocalyptic visions. And then let's, let's con I'm going to comment on, on Daniel 7 as a whole, and then we'll work our way through the chapter. Um, not, not with all the details, but with the basic uh, essentials of it as well. Fair enough? Here we go. Daniel 7, New American Standard. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, <clears throat> king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream, and visions lay in his mind as he lay in his bed. And he wrote the dream and related the vision and related the following summary of it. Verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking, and that'll be a key phrase, I was looking, in my vision by night, I'm going to comment as I go through here if you don't mind on, hey, pay attention to that, ver that statement, that word, things like that, just so we can go back to them later. I was looking in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking, 
until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand up on two feet like a man. And a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. And behold, uh, and, uh, and there's that phrase, I kept looking. In the night visions, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And was given is kind of relevant when we get to Revelation. Verse 7, after this I kept looking. There we go, that same phrase again. In the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth, it devoured and it crushed, and it trampled. One of the key words, trampled. It trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by its roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. All right. Now, the first thing I want to note is, and I mentioned this already, that it's this fourth beast that is clearly the focal point. And the reason why we would say that is, is an ancient text like Daniel is meant to be read aloud. All right. You'll see this in Revelation 6. Revelation 6, you have the, the first six seals. And each of the first four seals begin very much the same way. I heard a voice like thunder say, Come! And I saw a rider on a blank-colored horse. And he said this. And then a second horse, come! And I saw another colored horse like this. And, and there's, this, there's this symmetry to these first four. All right? And all of a sudden, the fifth seal. And he opened the fifth seal. There's no reference to a voice saying, come. No reference to a rider on a horse saying of its, of its color. There's only four horses after all. And all of a sudden, it's different. And when you're hearing this... And you're listening for these clues. You notice how we listen for, I kept looking, I kept looking, I kept looking. This is Daniel's way of of the hearer's hearing sequence. And all of a sudden, what we notice in the sequence is, the fourth beast gets a longer description than the other beasts. It's more dreadful, it's more terrifying, and he goes on, and he goes on. And in fact, in the next section, he's going to go back to the fourth beast. In fact, in 15 to 28, he's going to go back to the fourth. The fourth beast is the focal point of this. All right? So that's the first thing for us to notice. All right, verses 9 through 14 now. I kept looking. So sequence, right? Transition from thought one to thought two. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vestiture was, white, was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads, a very good translation, by the way, were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking, there's that phrase again, because of the sound of the boastful words which, was, which the horn was speaking. So we're back to the fourth beast again. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and it came up upon the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right, there's the second part. Okay. Now what we notice in this part is, of course, that it's kind of like the, 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 the image in, in Daniel chapter 2. We have these four parts of the statue, and mind you, in the four parts of the statue, right? Remember Daniel 2? The first part and the fourth part got greater attention. The second and third part were like one verse. To mention the second and third parts of the statue. But then what happens? I saw a stone uncut by human hands, and it demolishes and destroys. That's the same thing that's happening in verses 9 uh, through 14 here. This one like an ancient of days comes, and he destroys that fourth beast. And the other, well, the other ones have like an extension of life given to them, but, that's, but they're also going to be destroyed too. It's the stone uh, as well. Everyone okay with that? We're tracking? Very good. 15. Now, it gets detailed. A, a little bit of, we, we get a little bit of an answer to some of our questions. But let's just say, this ain't good news for us till we get to the end. All right? As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed. That should tell us something. Within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. See the difference? He has to have an angel interpret the dream for him, whereas he interpreted the dreams, he interpreted the dreams for the kings uh, earlier on. Verse 17, here's the interpretation. These, four, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints, that's us. The saints of the highest one, the Greek says holy ones. If your translation says holy ones, it's fine. Holy ones can refer to angels. And there's a tremendous question here whether saints or holy ones, is the proper interpretation, whether this is referencing angels or humans. I vote for humans. I really think it's us. Uh, saints of the highest one. So the highest one will be a name for God. Or the most high God. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. That sounds like good news, right? Well, it is. All right. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled. There's that word again. Trampled down the remainder with its feet and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast. There's that same phrase again. Which was larger in appearance than its associates. So verse 21. I kept looking. There's that phrase again now. We have a transition. All right. Uh, And that horn was waging war with the saints. This is where it becomes bad news. And overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. 
Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down, which could be translated as trample, but it's a little bit of a different word, but same idea. Tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He'll speak out against the Most High, and he'll wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will make and he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court—that's the court that we saw in verse nine through fourteen. All right, remember the court sat in verse ten. But the court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale and I kept the matter to myself. Right? Daniel understands to some extent what this means. Now I want us to turn for just a second to the end of Daniel chapter 8. Also, I'm just going to read it. And if you have your Bibles open, um, you can see it. Uh, Daniel, end, end of Daniel 8, verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted. He, he's just seen another vision. And sick for days. And I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded, astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. And we'll notice that 7 and 8 are very much parallel and overlapping. All right? Basically, 8 just gives us much more depth about this horn. All right? But it's the same thing. It's, it's just expounding more detail about what's going on in this particular vision as well. Now, I've actually done your disservice, I realize, about, about 90% of the way through this. Uh, I say this in my study of Revelation, when we do uh, study the book of Revelation. What I think happened for some of you was you got caught up, I'm assuming something here, and I think I'm right. Uh, experience tells me that I, that I probably am. You got caught up trying to discern all the details. I wonder what the ten kings are. I wonder what that one king is there. I wonder what, oh, there are four kings. Well, what four kings might they be? And as soon as we do that, we lose a major thrust of the function of an apocalypse. Because an apocalypse speaks to your emotions. It draws you in. You're supposed to be afraid. And then rejoice. And then afraid. And then worried. And then rejoice. And when we read it and try to, well, what, what are that, what's that mean? 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 We get an intellectual exercise that fails to grapple with the emotions. All right, so this is, this is the... See, Daniel could have just told us what all this is. Right? But an apocalyptic vision is so much better. It's so much better. I've said in my, my Revelation study, if you've been in it, right, the best interpreters of Revelation are children because they get it. Dragon, bad. Whoa! Dragon chases woman. Oh, no! Woman's good. The two wings of an eagle pick up the woman and carry her to a wilderness. Oh, great news. Right? There's war in heaven, and Michael and the dragon are waging war, and the dragon's kicked out. Yeah! 
They get it. We're trying to go, hey, what does that happen? What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean this? Does that mean that? Is that Russia? You know? Is that, is that China? You know, is that, is that Greece? Is that Rome? Is that Babylon? Is that Persia? Is that Cyrus? Is that Alexander the Great? Is that Antiochus Epiphany? Who is this? And we, and we lose the emotions. All right? And actually, I'm going to give you away a secret. I'm going to go through everything tonight. I'm going to go through all of Daniel 7. I'm going to jump us to the New Testament and say, hey, I think this is what the New Testament is doing. And I will not even attempt to identify what these four beasts are. All right? I won't even try. Beast number one could be. Beast number two could be. Beast number th- well, some say this and some say th- All that happens when we do that, by the way, is you leave confused. You leave confused. We accomplish nothing. And we actually lost the whole thrust of what an apocalypse is doing for us. All right? Now, I do think there's great meaning here and great significance, but uh, identifying the four beasts is not going to be it. Now, we'll attempt to do that later on. 10, 11, and 12, maybe we'll do that uh, a, a little bit as well. But let me see if I can go back and, and uh, go through as well. All right. Um, uh, in a nutshell here, before we go through any of the details of 7-1, well, actually, let's go to Tremper's notes here at the beginning of uh, page 13, top of page 13. Trevor Longman lists uh, the following features as major themes of these chapters. And we're dealing with chapters 7 through 12. All right, Horror of human evil, particularly as it's concentrated in the state. These four beasts are what? They're beastly, but they're kings. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite, what do you know about the beasts? Man was to rule over the beasts. And beasts are not human. Right? They're evil as a result of that. So, so these are human evil that has become not human but beastly. All right, secondly, there's an announcement of a specific time of deliverance. There's repentance. This will be especially chapter 9. That leads to deliverance. And 9, by the way, we'll, we'll spend a whole week on 9. Because 9 is essential to much of the modern... Um, end times, um, how do I say this, uh, um, sensationalism, paranoia, I didn't say that, you did, um, I didn't deny what he said, I just, he said it, um, uh, right, the, the, the stuff that's going on in our modern churches about end times sensationalism, it's, it's Daniel 9, I mean, really, it all, it all boils down to how we interpret Daniel 9, so we'll have to spend... Some time on that as well. All right, but Daniel 9, the thrust of Daniel 9 is repentance leads to, leads to deliverance. All right? uh, revelations that a cosmic war stands between, behind human conflict. All right? Paul says this, by the way. This is New Testament, isn't it? We battle against not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Right? It's warfare. And Daniel's giving us this imagery of this warfare that's going on. And it's, it's spiritual warfare, as we understand. Uh, um, it's, by the way, I say spiritual warfare, but it's really happening. See, spiritual warfare is like, oh, it's out there. I don't have to really partake in it. You know, I could put my armor on if I want to put my armor on. I think I'll stay in my tent and not fight this war today. We're in the midst of a war with a devil who will enter the tent, the tent and destroy you. We have no choice. We must put on the armor, and wage war. That's it. Because whether you want to wage war or not, the enemy is waging war against you. So don't spiritual it and make it irrelevant um, uh, and insignificant. All right, judgment. 
is certain for those who resist God and oppress his people. Okay? They will be destroyed, right? Uh, um, well, they had an extension of life for a period of time, but after that, they're destroyed. Right? And then God's people will experience new life in the fullest sense. Right? And I think if we go to the New Testament, we find out, by the way, to be on God's side means you're truly human. To be against God's side, you are beastly and therefore have lost your humanness. To be on God's side is to be truly human. Right? And I think the New Testament teaches that, right? By the way, right? Jesus is the image of God. And we are co-heirs with Christ. We are therefore being truly human by being obedient to God's kingdom. So I think these are some major themes uh, that are going on here as well. Okay, let's also note now, let me see what else I might have here. All right, we'll get to that in Daniel 8. Well, the, theme, the moral of the story is that the saints of the highest one, which I think is us, the people of God, ancient Israel, modern-day Christians, whatever you want to call it there, people on God's side, um, win, but only through suffering. So I think this is, this, is, this is not great encouragement news here. We win, but only through suffering. And we're going to watch that word trampled when we get to chapter 8, because it, it comes up again uh, there as well. Okay, the central focus of Daniel 7, then, is the Ancient of Days. And the throne. So right in the middle of this chapter is the scene in heaven of the Ancient of Days taking his throne. So we'll keep that in mind, too. That's the focal point now, right? And we kind of already been there, right? Because what did... What do the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar tell us? They all concluded with, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. I'm reading Daniel 4, 35, uh, 34 and 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are kind of as nothing he does according to his, to his will and the host of heaven. Among, among uh, the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand. Who can say to him, what hast thou done? Right? You know, we see this same theme running throughout the whole of Daniel, so we're not surprised when it appears here at the end of, uh, or in the middle of Daniel as well. We'll get that point out as well. All right, let's go back to Daniel 7 now and work our way through the chapter. Obviously, I'm not going to even attempt to decipher what that beast represents because we're told that the four beasts are four kings, right? And so immediately we want to do what? Identify who the four kings are. All right. And I'm going to actually argue, I don't think we can do that. My first argument that I don't think we can do that is we have no consensus in Christendom and never have. And what does that tell us? That tells us that the description of these four beasts is vague enough that we really can't identify who the four kings are. If we could, we'd have pretty good agreement on that. And But we don't have agreement on that. And by the way, don't let anyone tell you that we do, because we don't. All right. So uh, there's two major schools, but... Uh, that's the whole point. There's two major schools, and they don't agree with each other. So that would be my first point as well. All right, let's go back. Verse 2, Daniel 7. I saw the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. All right, actually, here we go. <clears throat> the, four, um, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. All right, four. <clears throat> and if you've been in my study of Revelation, I talk about numbers and how numbers are used in apocalypses. And, and I'll, 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 I'll be brief on this. I was one of the greatest skeptics of this whole concept that numbers had any significance at all. 
Because all I ever heard was, well, the number of this means that, and the number of this means that. And then this guy says, no, the number of this means that. And somebody else says, no, the number of this means that. I'm like, well, dudes, you don't even agree with each other. How do we know that the number means that at all? You just said it means that, and it made sense there, but then somebody else said it means something else. All right, well, here's the reality. In all my studies of apocalyptic literature, and I've studied essentially all the Jewish apocalyptic literature out there, including the Old Testament apocalyptic and the book of Revelation. So, all right, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Numbers have, symbol, have symbolic significance. They just do. In fact, I would say it this way. A number has as its primary meaning a symbolic significance. And then it may, or may not, have a secondary meaning that would be a literal meaning. Let me see if I can explain that. In the book of Revelation, there are seven churches, right? Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to the seven churches. They're called the seven lampstands. All right. In apocalyptic literature, numbers have as their primary meaning symbolic significance. What does that mean? Seven is universally understood to represent completion, perfection, God, Jesus, something of that nature. The seven churches in Revelation represent all of Christianity. That's the primary meaning. The secondary meaning of the seven churches is there are seven actual churches. There really was a church in Ephesus that it was written to, and a church in Colossae, and a church in Pergamum, and Smyrna, and Thyatira, etc. That's the secondary meaning. That's not the primary meaning, though. That's the secondary meaning. Right? In fact, there were actually a whole bunch of churches in Colossae, so which one are you writing it to? All right, so the point then is this. When we look at numbers in, in apocalyptic literature, number four, and by the way, we don't know what they all mean, but numbers are pretty consistently, number four represents the created realm. And you'll see this in the book of Revelation all over the place. Um, here you go. Passing reference. Here we go. In the book of Revelation, the earth has four corners. There are four winds. There's the heavens, the earth, under the sea, and the sea. That's four, even if my fingers didn't actually do that. There's the earth, the sea, the rivers and springs, which are actually one based on the construction, and heaven. There are four series of judgments, right? Seals, bowls, trumpets, and thunders, which we're not told about. Um, the cargoes in Rome, in Revelation 18, have 28 items in them, and they represent all the products of the world. 28 is 7 times 4. 7 is perfection, 4 is the created realm. All the cargoes of the world are 28 in number. This just happens all over the place in Revelation. And in fact, I was convinced that this is the case by my studies of Revelation because it happens too much. There's just no way it's accidental. You know, you can say, well, four means that here, but it doesn't mean that everywhere. It means that always in Revelation. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, numbers are significant, and John actually avoids significant numbers oftentimes. Dragon appears six times. Beast appears eight times, not seven Specific names for God appear seven times, and only seven times. You begin to go, okay, this was done intentionally. He meant seven for God. Four represents the created realm. So what do we see then? Well, we see four winds. That means it's coming from all directions, right? right, That means (laughs) this is really bad. Because wind doesn't blow from every direction at once, by the way. How, How does that even happen, possibly, right? And then it's stirring up the great sea. All right, well, we've got to put ourselves in an ancient world now. What do we know about the sea if we're an ancient landlocked peoples? And by the way, Israel was landlocked because the coastal plain 
kind of separated them from the sea. The sea is what? What lives in the sea? It's the abyss. What lives in the sea? Beasts. What kind of beasts? Dragons. Fearsome behemoths. Untamable creatures that, according to the book of Job, I can tame them, but you can't. That's the book of Job, right? Can you tame the behemoth? No. That's, that's what they think. The sea is fearsome. At the end of the sea is what? Nothing. It drops off. The world ends. No sense of venturing across the sea then. All you're going to do is meet death, either by sea creatures or by falling off the world. The world. <clears throat> All right, so this is the stirring up the great sea. This is bad news. So see the, see the emotion that's coming in here uh, that we've already been subjected to as well? <clears throat> so now the next thing we see is that there are four great beasts. Well, we're told the four beasts are four kings. Point number three. There was that four kings that will arise on the earth. Verse 17. The question is this. Are, is it four kings? I'm going to raise this as a question and let you figure out whatever answer you want to answer it with. Are they four kings because they are four literal kings? Or are they four kings because they represent all the kingdoms of the world? Because four represents totality in regards to creation. There are four directions, right, etc. And this is universal throughout the apocalyptic literature. So this isn't just, I'm not just making this up because it fits here. I, if you obviously know what I think already, right, I think it's just not four actual literal kings per se. It could still be that. That would be the secondary meaning though, right? The primary meaning is they're all the kingdoms of the world. And I think that that's justified by the fact that we have a lot of trouble identifying what these four beasts represent. What do the three ribs coming out of that one bear-like thing mean? Well, we kind of think it means this, but maybe it's that. Well, if you think this view, then you think it's that. But if you think that view, you think it's, right? You see how we have trouble with this? All right. Apocalyptic sometimes gives vague, undefined imagery. Uh, uh, let, me, let me skip to the end of the chapter for a second. This happens in a time, times, and half a time. Daniel 7, verse 25. How long is that? Times is plural. Everyone says, oh, it's three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years. The problem is this. Later on in the book of Daniel, and and in the book of Revelation, we see three and a half years. Even though I have four fingers up, because I'm not good at that. (laughs) But how do you do three and a half anyways? Okay. So, very good. All right. You should see me call balls and strikes in my kids' little league games. Two, never mind. Two and one. You know, I, I don't even try. Because I, I used to, like, whatever. I have all kinds of, I, I'll be wrong. And then the coaches would think it was wrong. I'm like, I said two and one. You know, I didn't mean three and oh or whatever I had up. All right. Um, times, times, and half a time is the first representation of a time frame. But the first representation of a time frame is undefined. Because the word times is plural. Later on in Daniel and in Revelation, it's three and a half years. Though in Daniel and Revelation, the numbers are actually a little bit different. And we'll look at that in chapter 12. What do we tell from that? Answer is, the very first time the number appeared, it was undefined. Therefore, don't limit it. He's telling you. It's just an apocalyptic way of saying, guys, I'm being vague about this. I'm not being clear. So later on when he says three and a half, or 42 months, or 1,290 days, or whatever, he's referencing the time, times, and half a time with a literal time frame. And what we do is we take it as a literal time frame. 
but he already told us it's not a little time frame. I, that's my opinion, not the expression and permission of Cornerstone Fellowship or the pastors therein, but Rob Darrenpool here. Um, I don't think it's a little number. And I think, it's, I think Daniel's telling us in an apocalyptic way it's not a little number. If the first time was 42 months or 1260 days or 1290 days, then we know time times and half a time. The second one is two, right? Time, that's one. Times, that's two more. Half a time, that's three and a half. Oh, now I got it. It's three and a half. But he didn't do it that way. He gave us this vague, unclear designation the first time. Does that help? A little bit? See where I'm coming from? Okay, here we go. Now, number one. A lion, uh, beast number one. Uh, uh, let me go back. I'm sorry. Let us see. The beasts are bizarre, mutant, and thus horrific. For an Israelite, they are evil by definition because they're hybrid. In the Israelite law, right, you cannot sow two types of seeds in the same field. Deuteronomy 22. You can't sow two types of You can't wear a garment made of two types of, of, of uh, materials. Because you can't... Why? Because God made everything according to its kind. Don't mix kinds. When you mix kinds, you get evil not made by God. Remember the stone that was not made by human hands? Ah, made by God. The image was therefore what? Human made. These beasts are what? They're human. Right? But they're mutant and therefore, or human in origin, they're mutant and therefore evil uh, as well. All right, so for, um, uh, let's see, uh, number one then, going here briefly here, the lion with wings of an eagle stood like a man. Number two, three ribs, it's a bear with ribs coming out of its mouth. Uh, three, a leopard with four wings and four heads. All right, and then the fourth beast, it's dreadful, vaguely animal-like, iron teeth, bronze claws, ten horns, Little horn with eyes like, like, like man's eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. And the uttering great boasts we'll, 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 we'll look at a, a bit as well. The fourth beast is the central one, obviously because it's got a longer description. It's more terrifying. All right. It continues into the account of the ancient of days. Remember 9 through 14? Went back to the beast number four then. In the middle of this ancient of days passage, we go back to beast number four. It tells us that this is the focal point. Um, of course, it, it continues into... Um, uh, 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 there as well. Okay. Uh, Greece or Rome? There's your, two, I, there's your two options. That's my only effort to tell you what I think it is, and I don't think it's either one, so that, good luck. Only historical sequence can justify either one. The descriptions are so vague that there's no way we can really identify it. Four and ten are symbolic numbers. Ten's what? The law. Totality in regards to the law. Right? So uh, we see ten in that sense as well. All right. Horns... You ever seen ancient um, um, pictures with Moses and he has horns? You ever seen ancient art with Moses with horns? Yay, nay? Anybody? I got, I got a yes. Thank you. I got an amen. I got an amen. I got two amens. Another one. Okay. Here we go. Um, horns symbolize strength. It's a symbol of strength. All right. So Moses is this horned individual. It's not because Moses had horns or anything else or he's mutant. It's just Moses is a symbol of strength in ancient Israel. Uh, um, as well. So horns are often a, a symbol of power. So when this fourth beast has ten horns, and then there's another eleventh horn that comes up from amongst the ten, this is an incredibly powerful, well, king. How's that? Some real powerful tyrant ruler is going to come, and it's not going to be good news for the people of God um, as well. Small horn replaces the three, and then there's the mouth uttering great boasts uh, that were mentioned later on there as well. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll go to the Ancient of Days.
And uh, we might not even finish Daniel 7 tonight, let alone the New Testament. So, so Ancient of Days, 9 through 14 now. <clears throat> all right. It's called a theophany. A theophany means a manifestation of God. That's all it means. An epiphany, right? You have some manifestation. Um, a theophany is a manifestation of God. So it's God taking his seat on the throne. And, of course, it's um, not just any throne. It's a law court throne. But did anybody notice that the throne has wheels? Right? Ezekiel's God's throne, it's a chariot throne. Because in the ancient world, what does the king ride in on to battle? A chariot. So it's a chariot throne. And you see the wheels are ablaze here as well. All right, the Ancient of Days is God. All right, but we're going to, if we have time next week, we'll look at the description of the Ancient of Days. Let's see if I have uh, any references here on your outline. Let's just go through this very quickly. I don't, I don't. Okay, good. So, his head and his hair were white like wool. We'll see that in the book of Revelation. His clothing is white. We'll see that in the book of Revelation. That's why I put righteousness down. I think Revelation tells us that. Uh, and it's attended by angels. Let me just briefly mention this. It says thousands upon thousands, and then myriads upon myriads. And I know that your translations don't all say that. All right, we're in verse 10, right? So here we go, 7, verse 10. Oops, not that way. Here we go. Let me click the button. All right. And all the translations are wrong. Here we go. And I'll tell you why. Well, they're not all wrong, but they're kind of wrong. And I'll tell you why I think, I think so as well. ESV. Um, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Bad translation. Um, thousands upon thousands and myriads, oops, and myriads upon myriads. When I get that done, I have to stop. Uh, uh, New American Standard. Net Bible. Uh, many thousands stood ready. Many thousands were ministering to him. Many tens of thousands stood ready to serve him. Well, not much better, but a little bit better. Uh, NIV, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Bad, 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 bad. Uh, New King James, sorry about this, all you people here. 10,000 times 10,000, bad, 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 bad. Uh, look at the New Living Translation. Millions of millions. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Really bad. Okay, here we go. Um, the Greek says myriads. So if we go back to your outline, uh, here's the deal. In Greek, and, and, I, and I, I'm looking at the Greek. I know this is written in Aramaic uh, here as well. But the New Testament writers are reading the Greek version of Daniel. So we're really at home in Greek, whether it's Jesus or Paul or John in, in the book of Revelation. They're, they're, they're reading the Greek version of Daniel, which is probably what they had the most access to. Uh, anyways, um, uh, and here's the deal. In Greek numbering, a thousand is basically your highest countable number. Okay? It's the highest countable number is a thousand. The word 10,000 is myriads, and it's almost always in the plural. In fact, I don't think it actually ever exists in the singular. In other words, the word 10,000 means 10,000s, plural. All right, so you can't say 10,000 times 10,000. It doesn't say that. It says 10,000s, plural, times 10,000s, plural. So, sorry to burst your bubble. Here we go. Revelation 9. Some of you are familiar. 200 million soldiers or horses cross the dried up Euphrates River, right? It doesn't say that. It says two times ten thousands 
times ten thousands. You can't define the number. It's myriads of myriads. And 10,000 times 10,000 equals 100 million times 2 is 200 million. But 10,000s times 10,000s is uncountable. Times 2, by the way. So, it's kind of like our word for infinity. It's, it's more like, you know, saying, well, you know, like millions and millions. Billions. You know, in, in the modern world, right? we're getting more, more like billions, you know. Because um, we get Bill Gates around, so they're not millionaires anymore. Now they're billionaires. Um, it's more like billions. It's not really infinity, so to speak, but it, it'll serve that way as well. The point is, you can never translate this. And I think the answer is, there is an extremely high but countable number of angels, and there's an uncountable number of angels. Right? And, and if you take the Revelation study this summer, uh, we'll see a very interesting parallel with that. I'll give you an insight. The 144,000 and the great multitude. All right. Won't tell you any more than that. Here we go. Uh, 11 and 12 of Revelation 7 is their summary statement, uh, namely that the beast was slain, uh, and then the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away uh, um, as well. So then there's one like a son of man. All right, now here's what we've done. We immediately jump to the New Testament. Any of you that are familiar with the New Testament know this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. But in Daniel 7, it's not used for an individual. It seems like it is. Because there's one like a son of man. But as we continue to read verses 15 through 28, what do we find out that's happening? The battle is between the fourth beast and that one horn and the saints. The battle is not between the beast and one person. It's between the beast and the saints. The holy ones. That whole issue that we raised briefly there as well, right? The son of man is the saints, the Holy One, in Daniel. Now, that doesn't mean it's not Jesus. Right, let me use, I'll give you a quick insight here, because I, I won't have time later on tonight to do it anyway. Um, the stone that destroys the image in Daniel 2, it's Jesus, right? Peter says that you are living stones. It's not just Jesus. It's us also. Jesus is the true people of God. I'll use an Old Testament way of saying it. Jesus is the true Israel. He's not just a true Israelite. He's a true Israel. He is the faithful Israel who did what Israel couldn't do, what we couldn't do for ourselves. He was faithful. He fulfilled the entire role of the people of God. And because he fulfilled it, now we, because he gave us a spirit, can also fulfill it. That's why in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, Jesus is called something, we're called something. Jesus is called something, we're called that same thing. We're co-heirs with Jesus. So, Jesus is the Son of Man. No problem with that. And we'll look at the New Testament and see how Jesus uses it. But, and there's a very interesting passage that we'll look at later, later on with that as well. But, that, but, but we've jumped to the New Testament too quickly. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is actually the entire people of God, as evidenced by the fact that we, we go a little bit further as well. All right, And see, the whole point of it becomes this. It's human versus beasts. And those who ascribe to the four kings are beastly. Those who ascribe to God's kingdom, the Ancient of Days kingdom, are human. Human versus beast. Human versus beast. Human versus beast. 
And human is all of us who give allegiance to Christ. Make sense? Okay, very good. Uh, here we go. Uh, now, writing on the clouds, ancient imagery for God. You can look at those notes here yourself later on as well. Um, I put down under Son of Man a collective um, for mankind uh, uh, as a whole. Psalm 8.4. I'm sorry, thank you very much. Psalm 8.4. What is man that you should be mindful of him or the son of man? You see, mankind in Psalm 8.4 is expressed as the son of man. Make sense? All right. Uh, Ezekiel, it's also his favorite title for himself. He uses it 93 times, I think it is, uh, for himself. Um, and, of course, he's using him, himself as the representation of the people of Israel, ultimately, as well. But then I, I put down here, it represents the saints in verses 22 and 27, and we'll see if we can play that out later on. So, son of man contrasts with the beasts. That's the whole point here as well. Okay? Now, what's the good news? The good news is the son of man is given dominion. The son of man is given a kingdom. Right, verse 14, to him a, a kingdom was given. What does Jesus say? The kingdom of God is in your midst. What does he mean by the kingdom of God is in your midst? Ah, dudes, I'm standing right here. I am the kingdom of God. And then, of course, he's establishing the kingdom of God, which is larger than that, the totality of God's work in creation. And then what does he tell us? You are kings and priests. Romans I'm sorry, Revelation 1, 6. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. He has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. That's the good news. The Son of Man is us. It's Christ. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not being blasphemous. But it's also us. All right? And uh, as well, and I'm, I'm going to go back to the Son of Man later on as well. Okay, here we go. Uh, equivalent to the stone cut without hands that destroys the four kingdoms. Um, as well, we'll get back to that later on, I think, as well. So here we go. All right, here's the interpretation now. And I'm just going to kind of go through this very, fairly briefly because I think we've got a, got a good thrust of what this chapter is about. But bottom line is this. An angel interprets it. We find out the four beasts are four kingdoms. All right? Uh, I.e., they're earthly. They have an earthly origin. And that's the whole point because they're beasts. The saints, however, will possess a kingdom forever. We've kind of given the insights to that in the New Testament. However, they're going to suffer at the hands of the little horn. They will suffer. In fact, I would actually point out the fact, I'm skipping ahead now, the way in which we receive our kingdom is through suffering. That's the moral of the story. The one who overcomes, I'll grant the right to sit down with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. Revelation 3.23. You want to inherit the kingdom? You want to be a king? Well, we already are. And we will be, but we must overcome. And that overcoming is suffering at the hands of the little horn. And we'll see that in chapter 12 as well. Okay? This little horn now, this 11th horn, is the most rebellious. He speaks out against the most high. We'll see that if we have time. I think we will to get to Revelation 13. He utters great boasts. We'll see that in Revelation 13. And he's going to wage war. It says that, right? Verse 21 of Daniel 7. He waged war with the saints. And he overpowered them. Okay? So, like it or not, we're in the midst of a war. Good news and bad news here as well. A horn is symbolic of pride and honor as well. We see that in, in a couple passages here as well. I'm going to skip over that. Verse 25, letter E. Time, times, and half a time. We often take it as three and a half years. I'm not going to get into point number two right now. <clears throat> but point number three is this. 
Note the word times is plural and does not necessarily mean two. It's undefined. Um, so the first reading, that's what I mentioned earlier, is that it's vague. All right, and then the end of the chapter is, the kingdom is given to the people of the holy ones. It's an everlasting kingdom, and all the kingdoms will become subservient to him. Travis. Well, it can. It's just undefined. In other words, you can use times for two, but in this passage here, it's just undefined. It's just plural, and it can mean two or more. And so he's not telling us what it means. Now, later on, he might tell us what it means, but in apocalyptic literature, what you're doing is, is later on, you're just playing off of that earlier passage. And that earlier passage kind of set the standard saying, I was intentionally vague for a reason. I don't want you to overly literalize this and apply it to that era only. Is kind of the way I would put it. Yeah, so, as well. And we'll see this in the book of Revelation if we have a chance to get there as well. Well, Hebrew does uh, more than Greek does. Uh, Hebrew has the ability to have singular, dual, and plural. All right. Um, but Greek, not really. Greek has singular and plural. Now, we do have dual for some things. Pair, you know, just these, these certain words that connote two as opposed to three or more. Right? You know, both of your friends are here as opposed to all of your friends are here. Both is two friends. So that's a dual. But very limited in English and very limited in Greek as well. So, yeah, very good. All right, so page 16 now. Revelation chapter 7. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7. All right? And again, we could go way over our heads here if we are trying to figure everything out. Don't do that. Let's just, let's just talk on a level. If somebody wants to put the air down because it's, it's getting hot. Hot? Yes? Okay, good. I got enough hot. Sorry, ladies that didn't raise their hands and say anything at all. Here we go. We won't get, as soon as it gets cold, which might happen soon here, um, I think if we left the air conditioner on, on, we'll be all right uh, as well. All right. <clears throat> Revelation 13 is building on Daniel 7. So if you, have, if you want to keep your fingers in, Revelation, in Daniel 7, we'll turn to Revelation 13, and we'll read. And, and it should be pretty apparent the fact that we've spent enough time uh, in uh, Daniel. Here we go. Verse 1, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. There we go, Daniel 7. <clears throat> Having ten horns, Daniel 7, and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, or crowns. On his heads were blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, Daniel 7. And his feet were like those of a bear, Daniel 7. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion, Daniel 7. And the dragon, now we met the dragon in, in Revelation 12. The dragon is Satan. It, it, Revelation 12 says that. So the dragon's the devil. Okay. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given, we saw that phrase once or twice in Daniel 7, to him a mouth, that was Daniel 7, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, that was Daniel 7, to blaspheme against, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against, did I skip something? And authority to act for 42 months, sorry, was, was given to him. 
And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God. That was Daniel 7. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. Literally his temple. That is, those who dwell in heaven. That's us. I'll explain why in a minute. Alright. Verse 7. And it was given, there's that phrase again, to him to make war with the saints. That was Daniel 7. And to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life. Upon the foundation of the world, the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's destined for captivity, the captivity goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Okay? So you, you see it there? All right, let's, let's go to this note, these notes here now. All right, so, and you can look these up here later on. But notice what, I, what, what we have here is this. The description of the one beast, this is what these points one through eight are telling us. <clears throat> is that right? Uh, maybe not one through eight. How about one through four? All right. So the descriptions of the one beast in Daniel and Revelation 13 fit perfectly all four beasts in Daniel 7. One of the, see, one of the beasts in Daniel 7 is like a leopard. One of them is like a bear. One of them is like a lion. One of them has four heads. How many heads do all four of them have total then? Seven. This beast in, Daniel, in Revelation 13 has seven heads. In other words, what's happening is, Revelation 13 is combining all four beasts of Daniel 7 into one. So if we go back, and my thesis that the four beasts of Daniel represent all the kingdoms of the world, John's just combined all the kingdoms of the world into one. Now, there's no doubt, if we were to go through Revelation 13 in more detail, that this one beast in Revelation 13 has elements of Rome. That, that's, that's pretty clear. I, I think actually Nero, by the way, is, in my opinion, is in mind here. Nero as the epitome of a Roman emperor who opposes the people of God. He kills Peter and Paul. Right. So Nero is this exemplar of this Roman emperor who opposes the people of God. But what does Nero represent? All the kingdoms of the world. I think that's what's happening. Because after all, even by the way, you see, even if we don't think the four beasts are all the kingdoms of the world, John still combined all four beasts into one. This one beast is four. It's not one kingdom then. It's four kingdoms. And if four kingdoms means all the kingdoms, I think it's just an easy deduction there. This, the bottom line is this. What, what did we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What did we see with Daniel? As the people of God, we live in the midst of a pagan world. And the governments of this world stand opposed to the people of God. And now, and we're going to find this out later on in Daniel, but Revelation is actually making it explicit. Where do the beasts get their power from? Satan. So we bring this to the New Testament. If you've been in our studies of, of the Gospels at all, what we've discussed is this. The Jewish world believed that they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah would come and would liberate them from Rome. Rome was the enemy. Rome is the reason why we don't have peace and prosperity in our land. 
We, Israel, the people of God, do not rule and therefore do not have peace because we have pagan emperors. Rome is the enemy. And Jesus comes in and casts out demons and says, that's your enemy. Rome's not your enemy, it's the devil. And as we go through Revelation, when we find out it's the dragon who empowers the beasts. And Jesus' answer is, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and I've given you authority to trample on serpents. Our real enemy is not pagan nations. They're just being empowered by the dragon to oppose God. See, he opened his mouth, Revelation 13, was it verse 6, right? To blaspheme God. That is his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Okay, what happened there? They're going to blaspheme God's name. They're going to blaspheme God's temple. God's temple is us. That is, those who dwell in heaven. You're like, well, wait a second, Rob. We don't dwell in heaven. Well, in the book of Revelation you do. You see, because the earth dwellers are what? Wicked. The earth dwellers... A literal translation of the Greek word, earth dweller. One who dwells on the earth okay, are the wicked. And they've given their allegiance to the beast who's being empowered by the dragon. So when John describes us, he uses, he uses references what? Well, we're heaven dwellers. Earth dwellers, heaven dwellers. So those who dwell in heaven is us. And that fits Daniel 7, doesn't it, right? Because what happens? The beast, or the horn, wages war against the saints of the highest one. This is warfare. And it's warfare of the kingdoms of the world being empowered by the dragon, opposed to the people of God. And what does it mean? Well, through Christ we're victorious. Let's let's see if we can go a little bit further here. Here we go. Uh, Oh, actually, there's your notes. Revelation 13 is a composite of the four beasts of Daniel 7. Ten ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns are all found in Revelation 13, but that's all four beasts together. All right, uh, and, and I lay that all out there. Uh, they speak blasphemies, which I reference the, the, the passages in Daniel. God is the object of the blasphemies. All right. War against the saints is almost identical terms. Uh, Daniel 7.21, Revelation 13.7. Also, Revelation 11, verse 7. And, and maybe, we'll see, We'll go to Revelation 11 in a, in a few weeks if we, if we have the opportunity. We'll see how, how it works. All right. Note also the role of Daniel 7.14 in, in the book of Revelation. Dominion was given. Right? Revelation 13, verse 7. All right? As, as well as Daniel 7.14. Over all who worship, and there's a book. All right? Uh, I'm going to skip Daniel 8 because we'll get to that next week. Oh, that's all I have for you there. Okay, good. Okay, cool. So I can go a little bit further now. Here we go. Not in your notes, though. Bonus material. Yes, please. Okay, say, say the question again. I think in it, okay, right, Nero. Exactly. Okay, very good. The question is, if Revelation 13 is a reference to Nero, and I think 666 is, is Nero myself, um, I think it's very, uh, uh, there's pretty good evidence it's indeed Nero. If that's reference to Nero, but we're still in the battle today, how does that work? Because Nero was simply the epitome 
of all the governments in the history of the world that oppose the people of God. So Nero is Mao Zedong, Hitler. Anybody, any nation, not just, not just Mao Zedong, by the way, but the entire governing organization of that, that opposes the people of God. Right? Which, in my studies of Revelation, and my studies of, of even Daniel, it's all governments. Well, no, see, I think it's political. So I don't think it's a cult per se, because I think it's political. Now, we got another beast in Revelation 13 that we won't get to, but there's a religious empowerment. Because, see, in the ancient world, politics and religion weren't separated like they are for us, like we attempt to do it anyways, right? So the government, well, remember, let's make a, an ordinance that everyone who doesn't bow down to you will be thrown in the fiery furnace. That's religious. We're going to make, the government's going to make a religious ordinance that you have to be the object of worship. And now who suffers? The people of God suffer. And that's just the theme is the way history pans itself out over the course of time. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be exceptions. So I, I, I see some of you might, might be thinking this way, right? There can't be historical exceptions to the general rule, right? Namely, we've been pretty privileged here in the United States and probably pretty blessed for a period of time. My studies would tell me that we shouldn't be surprised. Let's hope it doesn't happen. Let's work against this. We shouldn't be surprised if someday, even the United States makes laws against the church. Well, and you can say they already are, but I mean vehemently against the church. That results in, in, in you have no choice but either to obey this law or die. That's the way it is in China. That's the way it is in northern Nigeria. That's the way it is in certain other countries of the world. Now, that doesn't mean, see, I don't have this defeatist attitude. Well, that's according to Daniel, you know, they're all, all the governments of the world are, are ruled by demonic beings, so what the heck, you know, uh, give up trying. No, no, no. Let's continue to try because we've got great privilege in the United States that can do great service to the rest of the church. So let's continue to work and let's use the democratic process to do it. But ultimately, you know, uh, uh, as well. But, but, all right, one other thing. Yes, go ahead. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So this beast has seven heads, and seven is universally completion, perfection, um, totality, or a number for God. All right. Well, notice, and the question is, well, how could this beast then have seven heads? Let me get a drink of water, sorry. And ten horns. And ten, ten doesn't have to represent God. It could be Italian in regards to the law, things like that uh, um, as well. But um, notice in verse uh, 3, I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain. All right, now, people make a big deal of that, uh, by the way. Um, and, and the argument is, oh, you know, the future Antichrist is going to apparently be murdered, but not actually die and rise back from the dead, but he wasn't actually dead. All right, well, I turn to Revelation 5. And, oops, uh, verses 5 and 6, and it says, One of the elders said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. So if you try to argue in Revelation 13 that this Antichrist isn't actually killed, then you have Jesus not actually killed. Because the Greek is identical. What's going on? The Antichrist, whatever we want to call him that, that beast, whatever we want to call it, is an imitation of Jesus. Is a 
fraud, is a forgery. Satan appears as an angel of light. So therefore, this beast has seven heads because it's trying to imitate God. But notice its number is 666. So that's why this beast is as if it was slain. This is like, this is like Jesus. Right? And even uh, later on in Revelation 13, I think it's verse 11, um, I saw the, a second beast and had two, uh, let's see, 13. It's 11, yeah. Um, I saw another beast coming up. He had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke like a dragon. Why does he look like, why does he look like a lamb? Because he wants you to think it's Jesus. Now, let me go one more step. We, uh, we're over. Here we go. One more step, though. Can I go one more step? Here we go. <clears throat> Everyone's looking for the Antichrist. And where are we looking for him at? Out there, right? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Everything in Scripture tells us that the Antichrist, whatever you want to call him, will come from within, not from without. No, don't go there. See, see that? All right, we'll go there later. Here we go. Let's close in prayer. Now, well, I'm going to come back to the New Testament then because I didn't finish all my stuff. We'll go back to Daniel 8, and then we'll come back to the New Testament next week and see if we can flush all this out some more. So if some of this went over your head, hang in there. Maybe get the tape, listen to it again, and then we'll go back to it next week as well. So... All right, let's close in prayer. So, Lord, we thank you that we have a dominion and a kingdom that has been established by the Son of Man, by Jesus Christ, who was faithful when we weren't, and who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and has established his kingdom, and has now called us to be kings and priests and help us to be victorious, to live as people who truly are kings, who truly are priests, who truly rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, who are truly concerned to establish your kingdom on on this earth. But help us also to understand that our calling is to take up our crosses and follow you. Because this beast will wage war against us and is often victorious. And many of us don't see it, but we know our brothers and sisters around the world this very day and this very night are indeed suffering defeat at the hands of the beast. But that that defeat is the moment of their victory because they too will rise just as you have risen. And you hold out hope for all of us. So Lord, make our faith strong. Make our faith dynamic that we can be prepared to confront the enemy and proclaim the truth knowing that we've been given a kingdom and will be given a kingdom. Be glorified now in our lives. Help us never to allow the devil to have a foothold, thinking that we're not good enough, strong enough, courageous enough, pure enough, holy enough. But we've been all those things because we've been empowered by you and empowered by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.